0: I didn't need the introduction so much. Brother Mayor, it's been a blessing to my life in every way possible, I think. And I certainly appreciate him and the Lord putting our hearts together. Uh, Normally at this time on a Sunday, I've already preached once. My wife always said when I miss a service, everybody pays for it the next service. So we'll find out whether or not that's true Um, anyway, but I'm grateful for the opportunity and privilege to be with you and spend a few days with you um, around the word of the Lord together. Um, We preachers, we don't get to sit under a lot of preaching, and so these are blessed times for us as well. And uh, looking forward to hearing some preaching. Thank thank you, brother, for the message earlier and uh, turning our hearts toward a dependence upon God for everything. Right and for everyone if you will turn in your bible tonight to the book of isaiah chapter 53 isaiah chapter 53 if you are familiar with the scriptures you at least should be familiar with this text this is the pinnacle of old testament messianic revelation It is a gospel in itself, isn't it? In the way that God gave us the Word of God, we need it all, you know. I think about the gospels themselves, the four gospels, they are essentially historical narratives, just walking us through the conception, the birth, the life, the sufferings, the death, the resurrection, and in at least one case, the ascension of Christ back to heaven, giving us the historical facts of Christ. Psalm 22, a great messianic prophecy in itself, is unique in the sense that when you read Psalm 22, you're actually seeing the sufferings of Christ from His perspective when you read that psalm. It's got a uniqueness to it. When you come to this prophecy here in Isaiah chapter 53, you're not just reading about historical facts, although undoubtedly some of that is here. You're not just, you're not seeing the sufferings from his perspective, but you, he is explaining to you what it all means. It's almost as though this chapter and the few verses that precede it are like the epistles of the New Testament. They're telling us and explaining to us, expounding to us, all that the sufferings of Christ would mean. Of course, Isaiah writes many years before it actually transpires, but he writes with exceeding precision, doesn't he? In fact, the the paragraph itself begins back in verse 13 of chapter 52, where essentially we are introduced to this divine servant. Behold my servant, we are told to behold him who was to come. This servant of Jehovah. We are to take a long studied look at this one, he says. Behold my servant shall deal prudently. Notice with me the progression of thought through these early verses in this paragraph. As we walk through beholding Christ, as Isaiah pins it down, probably somewhere around 700 years before it actually became historical fact, we might say. It was already, of course, historical fact in the eyes of God, wasn't it? But notice in verse 13, as we are called upon to behold this servant, we are called upon to behold the ultimate success of Christ that is guaranteed. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. It is as though Isaiah, when he starts off this prophecy, he would have them to understand, although they would be reading about one who is coming to suffer and to bleed and to die, he would walk us through scenes of gruesome gore, and he would walk us through all these scenes of suffering and misery, rejection, and ultimately death, and yet He would have us to understand from the very outset that the one who we are reading about in the midst of all this suffering and rejection, He does not come as a loser, but He comes as a victor. His success is guaranteed. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. In verse 14, of course, he he talks about the deep wonder of Christ's humiliation. For before that exaltation would transpire, there would be that gruesome scene of bloody sweat. There would be that scene of the, the depths of humiliation where you find God in the hands of sinful men. There would be that scene of untold suffering As many were astonished at thee, his visage was so marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. Verse 15, of course, he talks about the manner and extent of Christ's victory. Or essentially, if you want to just simplify it, he talks about what Christ's death would mean for the world. So shall he sprinkle many nations. The king shall shut their mouths at him. But that which had not been told them shall they see, and that which they had not heard shall they consider. That is, that what Christ would accomplish when He comes and suffers at the hands of sinful men, His death, ultimately, it was not something that would be confined to simply one people. Not simply confined to merely one nation. But He would sprinkle many nations through the effects of His grand work. And then these three fundamental verses in verse 13, 14, and 15 of chapter 52, when you come to chapter 53, they're really expounded upon and opened up more fully in the the 53rd chapter. Of course, in verse 1 of chapter 53, he introduces us to a problem. It is the prevailing problem of man's unbelief. He said, Who hath believed our report? And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? It lets us know there's not a problem with God. There's not a problem with Christ or the work that He would come to do. There is not a problem with the grace that God extends to fallen men. There's not a problem with the message of the gospel. However, there is a problem in the heart of men. The problem of unbelief. Their failure to embrace the revelation which God has given concerning His Son. And then in verse 2 through 4, essentially he speaks of the nature of Christ coming into the world, particularly as it relates undoubtedly to the Jewish people. He talks about, in verse number 2, a humble Savior whom we look not for. He says, For He shall grow up before Him as a tender plant, and as a root out of a dry ground. He hath no form, nor comeliness, And when we shall see Him, there is no beauty that we should desire Him. A humble Savior. He didn't come to be that conquering political hero which many had envisioned Him to be. Of course, even in this hour, people seem to be still looking for the same thing, don't they? some conquering political hero, but Christ would not be that. He did not come to be the the one who broke the yoke of Roman bondage. He came to be the one who broke the bondage of sin, didn't He? A humble Savior whom we look not for. He so lowly in appearance, so unobtrusive in His ministry. We thought thought it couldn't possibly be Him that would redeem humanity. A humble Savior which we look not for. Verse number 3, of course, he speaks about an incarnate God whom we did not value. You Notice he said, He is despised and rejected of men. A man of sorrows. A man, he said. This is the same one, of course, that Isaiah said whenever he comes, they would call his name Emmanuel, God with us. They would call him the mighty God, he said. But he reminds us that he's a man. This one who Isaiah said was God is also a man. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He reminds us that Christ was a man, truly God, yet a man. And yet a man, yet very God of very God. An incarnate God whom we did not value. Notice he said a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief and we hid as it were our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. We thought he wasn't worth anything. Verse number 4 of course he talks about a burden bearer whom he misunderstood. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem Him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. Ultimately, Isaiah says we just didn't get it. We couldn't grasp it. We didn't understand. We we misunderstood why He came as He came. We misunderstood why He came. Anyway, we, 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 we came to wrong conclusions about this one who would come into the world and suffer and die. Such is the blindness, of course, of the human heart to the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But when you come to verse number 5, which we will take tonight as our text, Isaiah begins to explain everything. He said, if you really want to know what it all meant, he notes, he says, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him and with his stripes we are healed. Israel, of course, had seen it for centuries. Seen it portrayed before their very eyes. When that guilty and condemned sinner would make his approach to God to obtain acceptance and forgiveness before God, the estranged sinner would lay hold upon a spotless lamb. Would lay hold upon an innocent victim and he would bring that sacrifice under the door of the tabernacle and later, of course, of the temple to make atonement for the wrongs that he had done. In that approach to God, of course, there were two things that seemed to be realized whenever men would come to God in that fashion. One of them there was a consciousness of sin. And when he comes to God in that fashion, he comes to God, he's essentially saying, I, I come to God in this fashion because I have sinned in the sight of God. I have fallen short or come short of the glory of God. I come this way because I have failed. I have not measured up to the requirements that God has set before us. And so there is a consciousness of sin guiltiness when a man approaches God in this fashion. And there's a consciousness that only death can satisfy the claims of sin upon us. The wages of sin is death. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. And that lamb was taken and violently slain, viciously slain. And there stands that guilty sinner who is compelled to confess he was wounded for my transgressions; He was bruised for my iniquities. The chastisement of my peace was upon him and with his stripes I am healed. Yet when this principle of vicarious suffering was revealed in its highest and most complete form in Christ, they failed to see it. They were blinded, in fact, to it. He didn't register with them that this, in fact, was exactly what was happening when Jesus of Nazareth carried His cross up to Calvary to suffer and to die before their very eyes. They couldn't see it. Isaiah, of course, bemoans this fact. In the early portion of this chapter, he bemoans this sad fact of their incorrect assessment of what happened with Christ. He, Notes in verse one, we did consider him to be unworthy of our confidence we, we didn't embrace the report he says that was given that God had given to us concerning Christ. We considered him to be unappealing to our desires in verse number two He failed to measure up to our carnal expectations. Isaiah reminds them verse number three, of course he says he he he, we considered him to be unvalued in our estimation. His griefs and sorrows, he said, meant nothing to us. In verse number four, he said we considered him to be unclean by our judgment. We thought he was simply getting what he deserved from the hand of God. He, he we, we thought he he was just getting what what was coming to him to begin with. Of course, we were wrong. We were wrong. Then Isaiah would have us under no such delusions. We. We're wrong if this is how we were thinking of God's Messiah, as they would tell them long before the time would come. For this divine servant was, in fact, bringing us into the holiest of all. This divine servant was bringing us to the mercy seat. He was bringing us to the blood of sprinkling that speaketh better things than that of Abel. Here we behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. The lamb wounded and bruised, chastised with stripes. I'm going to preach tonight, if I might, on verse number 5 here in this text about a vicarious or substitutionary sufferer for the guilty. Today the Holy Ghost would bring us to the cross of Christ and tell us what it means. Tell us what was going on in that scene. And it is my hope that when we leave this place tonight, we'll leave with the impression upon us that he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him and with his stripes we are healed. First of all, notice with me tonight the vital reasons for Christ's suffering. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon Him. The great mystery now when Isaiah records these words, the great mystery is now being removed. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. He notes that the sufferings that this divine servant would experience came upon him as a result of transgressions. They came upon him as a result of iniquities. So it might be said that the sufferings involve several things as far as this is concerned. It might be said, first of all, that the sufferings which Christ experienced involve the inflexible nature of the divine law. The law tells us what transgressions are. The law explains to us what iniquity is. And therefore when you come across these terms, it must turn you to the law of God, that perfect objective moral standard which God gave to men. And that law cannot and will not be changed or altered. The divine law makes no allowances for sin. The divine law, if you will, it really exposes us for what we really are. And to break a part of that law is to break it in its entirety, isn't it? If a man offend in one point, he is guilty as being a lawbreaker, essentially, isn't he? You say, well, I haven't done what others have done. It matters not. We are all guilty in the sight of God as lawbreakers, aren't we? The inflexible nature of the divine law to break the law of God is to involve ourselves in its prescribed punishments. That is, it is to bring upon ourselves the ruin and condemnation which the law gives to sinners. And and the law demands the death of the sinner. The wages of sin is death. This was established in the very outset of human history. And God created man and placed him in the Garden of Eden. He said, In the day that thou eatest of that tree, he said, Thou shalt surely die. Let's us know from the very first. Let's man understand and know. Therefore, to the sin is to invite and court death. It involves the inflexible nature of the divine law. There have been transgressions, haven't there? The places where men have gone beyond the boundaries which God has set. There have been iniquities, perversions, or or the twisting of what God has designed to be pure and holy. There have been transgressions and there have been iniquities. And the law demands satisfaction, doesn't it? Transgressions and iniquities, it, it involves the inflexible nature of the divine law. Secondly, it involves the immutable justice of a holy God. Now God will not have His law trampled under the foot of sinful men. His law will be vindicated. His law will be shown to be uh, as honorable as it is because His law, in fact, is right. You say, I thought you were a Christian we're not law people. His law is right. Don't have a problem with the law of God. You just can't be saved by it, can you? Well, don't want to get into all that tonight. The fact of the matter is is God is just and He cannot overlook sin. David Barron wrote so many years ago, he said, if God cannot forgive in righteousness, then He cannot forgive at all. God must forgive and be righteous. I mean, consider it. How can God be just and allow sin to be unpunished? The fact of the matter is He can't. He can't be just and allow sin to go unpunished. The punishment due unto those transgressions, unto those iniquities, they must come to meet on someone. Since in the substitute. God had one grand rule in sacrificing and it was this, it shall be perfect to be accepted. It shall be perfect, he said. Implies the innocence of the sufferings that he describes here in Isaiah chapter 53. It was to be the innocent for the guilty. It was to be the just for the unjust. For none could ever satisfy the claims of the law, but one who had never broken it. One could never satisfy divine justice, but one who had never offended against it. And so the sufferings of all eternity could never atone for one sin if we would suffer for them for ourselves. By ourselves, only one who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners and made higher than the heavens can avail. In this case, the implied innocence of the substitute. Here he is, a lamb without blemish and without spot. He can bear our sins and our guilt because He has none of His own. The implied innocence of the substitute. Notice the terminology here that He describes. There's the indicated violence upon the substitute. He was wounded, He said. The word wounded indicates pierced through. Pierced through. Signifies to be run through by a sword or some sharp weapon. He said he was bruised. He was crushed. He was broken to pieces. Shattered is the idea. The chastisement. Chastisement means to correct with blows. To punish. With his stripes he says. In fact you can look up the word stripes. It simply means black and blue. The implied violence upon the substitute. It was not some easy task. He would bring the substitute under the gates of death, wouldn't it? It would bring Him to the brink of all suffering. It would bring Him to the gates of death. And it really happened like that, didn't it? The Lord Jesus Christ walked up Calvary's hill carrying His cross and our sins. There to suffer and die for the sins of men. The vicarious reality of Christ's sufferings. The vital reasons for Christ's suffering. But then you'll notice here in verse number 5, the victorious results in Christ's suffering. Not in vain did He come. Not in vain did He bleed and suffer and die. Not in vain did He. Oh no. You know in this verse, it's always amazed me here leading up to this text it's a text that's really filled with great darkness. He talks about bruises and wounds and chastisements and stripes. And yet in the same place, it seems like they're completely out of place, but in the exact same place where he's describing this gruesome scene, you find two words. The words peace and healing. heal how those words get into this text? how these words get into this scene of darkness, this scene of suffering and sorrow and death? How'd, how'd peace get into a scene like this? How'd healed get into a scene like this? Huh? Oh, brother, that's the gospel, isn't it? A sinner has to come to the darkness of Calvary. Oh, brother, and see and find his peace there and know the healing that's offered there. Vicarious results. In fact, one writer said years ago, he said, as He enters into our guilt, so we enter into His reward. Victorious results in Christ's sufferings. Notice he says, with His stripes we are healed. This little word we, uh, this has captivated me. We are the beneficiaries of this work. We, he said. But notice in the context that he's talking about the very same we that he was talking about. Verse number 2, he said, When we shall see him, there's no beauty that we should desire him. Verse number 3, again, he said, We esteemed him not. Verse 4, we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. And then in verse number 5, he's talking about the same we, isn't he? The very same we. I find that interesting. In fact, he goes on to say in verse number 6, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. Very same we. And yet in verse number 5, he said with his stripes, We are healed. That is that crowd in verse number 2 that's so blind to the glory of Christ, so blind to what's going on in the gospel, so blind to his sufferings and what they meant, the crowd in, in verse number three that, that esteems him as nothing, you know, so so ignorant of it. Verse number four, you know, the 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 the, the crowd that says that ascribes to him he was just getting what he deserved. And verse number six, that rebellious crowd who just walks away from God. And yet it's that same we, brother. That same we, he said, who finds healing in the stripes of this suffering servant of Jehovah. The same we. What does it mean? Well, brother, it means that even the most ungrateful, even the most blind, even the most degenerate may find healing here. They may find peace here in these sufferings. For in His sufferings, first of all, rescue from sin's ruin is effected. That is, that which would utterly destroy us has been effectively removed. If He bears the curse the guilt, the condemnation, yea, the very sins away, then we, never, then we no longer bear them, do we? Huh? We no longer bear them. If He takes the condemnation upon Himself and suffers the condemnation in Himself, that's why we can say, therefore, there is no condemnation of them which are in Christ Jesus. We walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Rescue from sin's ruin is effective. If, if He has borne all of that, then we are free from their claims. Rescued from all the claims that, re- that, were, that, that were held over our heads. As terrible as the sins have been in your life and mine, they have been effectively dealt with, haven't they? In the sufferings of Jesus Christ. Our guilt is expiated. The law is fulfilled. Divine justice is satisfied. Hallelujah. What a Savior. I'm talking about the, the victorious results in Christ's sufferings. He bore it all that we might be forgiven of it all. Redemption is wrought. Even the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace. I was saved, I suppose, in some in in one way of thinking. I was saved a little later in life. I was 21 years old when I came to know Christ. Been raised in church and didn't know a thing. I was blind like this crowd was. Anyway, 21 years old. Many of us who were saved a little, you know, past our teen years and all the rest, we did things that we wish we'd have never done, went places we wish we'd never gone, done things and said things and all the rest that we now we look back on with such shame and regret. Many of us have have wondered, you know, we, we have wished almost, oh, brother, that my guilty past were washed away as though it never had been. Good news. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon Him, and with His stripes we are healed. Rescue from sin's ruin is effected. Secondly, I would have you notice that reconciliation with God is made. Now don't, don't mistake this point. God is right to be filled with indignation against His guilty creatures. God is right to have wrath stored up against that day against His guilty creatures. Have no problem with that. Make no mistake about that. There could be no peace except first everything that stood between my soul and Him would be removed. Are you hearing me? That's the only way that there can be peace with God. People have made this statement through the years up where I live. I suppose they probably do the same thing down here whenever someone dies and they'll say, Boy, I hope they made peace with God. They can't. It's already been made. It was made when Christ suffered for our sins. We can't make peace with God. Christ alone can make peace with God. Oh, reconciliation with God is made, but until our transgressions, until our iniquities are removed, the the great objects of His grand displeasure, until that is taken away, there can be no reconciliation with God. But the good news of the gospel is that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto Himself. Reconciliation with God is made. The chastisement which won our peace with Him was upon Christ. He is the mediator that brought peace between a holy God and sinful men, and there is no other. There is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. We're not making our way back to God. It's already been made, hasn't it? <laughs> Reconciliation with God is made. It was made when He was wounded for our transgressions, when He was bruised for our iniquities. But then I want you to notice that victorious results in Christ's sufferings, that renovation of our nature is possible. uh, With His stripes, He said, we are healed. The idea of the word healed is to mend, to cure, to thoroughly repair, to make whole. So the results ultimately are in this verse, he said, he affects something with God. He makes peace, doesn't he? And then he affects something with us. With his stripes we are healed. This is the remedy for all that would destroy us. You know, one thing that's amazed me as far as the glory of the gospel of Christ is this, that God does not change men and bring them into real healing. He does not do that by setting before us a moral example. Even if you set before man the most perfect of moral examples, He doesn't do that by providing us with a teacher who might teach us how to be better and find our best selves, whatever that is. But He changes the hearts of men by setting before them a crucified Christ. By setting before them one who suffers and bleeds and dies in their stead. That is it which changes the hearts of men. I think we're missing out on a lot of that these days anyway. John Newton knew it well enough when he wrote that great song Amazing Grace. Those stanzas that we never sing. He wrote these words, he said, In evil long I took delight, unawed by shame or fear, till a new object met my sight and stopped my wild career. I saw one hanging on a tree in agonizing blood who fixed his languid eyes on me as near the cross I stood. Still never till my latest breath can I forget that look. It seemed to charge me with His death, though not a word He spoke. It is the glimpse of Christ on Calvary. Dying for the guilty, standing in the stead of sinners, that ultimately brings real effectual change to the hearts of men, is not it? Heal. Heal. I believe like you believe. We believe a man is saved by faith in Jesus Christ alone. By faith alone, by grace alone, through faith alone in Christ alone. And I always look at that passage over there in Numbers 21, I think it is, where Moses is lifting up the serpent in the wilderness and people will say, well, all they did, all they did was look. That's true. But that's not all that happened. You hearing That's not all that happened. They looked, yes. Moses said, look. But when they looked, they lived, didn't they? They lived. It wasn't all that happened. Yes, yes, a sinner looks in faith to Christ. But that's not all that happens, is it? If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. How old things are passed away, behold, all things are become new. i tell you, I didn't know much about the gospel. i have been in church my whole life and I was amazed at 20, 21 years old how ignorant I was. How ignorant. I mean, brother, I couldn't even explain how, how much how little I knew. I've been in church my whole life sitting under Bible preaching. And I'm gonna tell you this when, I, when when the Lord finally brought me to Himself, didn't know a whole lot, but I knew in me life moved from above. Life that had never been there before. You say, Oh, what'd you do? I looked at Christ, but that was not all that happened. You hear me? Looked in faith to the crucified one, but that was not all that happened. Oh, brother, healed, he says, you may be. With his stripes we are healed. You say, what are you healed of? Well, can't tell you all of it, I don't suppose, but taking the text here as it is, we are healed of the blindness that we have to God's glory. Verse number 2. We are healed of the hard heart of unbelief. Verse number 1. We are healed of the deadly infection of pride and self-sufficiency. Healed of the fretting leprosy of selfishness and greed. Healed of the base corruption of worldliness and lust. Healed, he says. you healed. In fact, it means a few things. One, it means that there is an incurable corruption in man. You've got a problem that needs healing, doesn't it? But you cannot heal himself. Secondly it involves it speaks of a, the fact that the cure has been provided for man has been provided his stripes has been provided he is not without hope for a remedy it also speaks that when that remedy is applied it effectively works for the actual remedy of that corruption healed he says healed let me just mention a few things and I'll be done. One, is not this a fact? <laughs> is it not a fact God has declared it to be so? The promised effect will be your experience. With His stripes we are healed. This testimony is sure and certain. Secondly, must we not avail ourselves of it? <laughs> must we not avail ourselves of The best medicine in all the world will not heal until it's applied. You hearing me? We need the work of the Holy Ghost to make the work of Christ in us effectual. You say, What's the how do you do it? You, you take it. <laughs> Isn't that what faith is? Laying the hand upon the, the head, taking, taking what God has freely, so freely offered. By faith, the repenting sinner reaches out to lay hold on that offered gift. Faith means to embrace, to welcome, doesn't it? Well. Thirdly, do we not feel obligated then to love the Lord supremely? Look at what He has wrought. Behold what God hath wrought. What a wonder. What a wonder in Christ. No one else has done for me what He's done for me. And then lastly, are we not now compelled then to live as healed men? It's the most foolish thing in the world for someone who, who, who says that they have been healed to run right back out into the cesspool where well, the diseases of this world run rampant, wouldn't it? Huh? No, we're compelled because God has wrought a work in us. Compelled to live as those who have been healed. We're not limping around with the same crippledness that we had before. Oh, no. We'll live and walk and rejoice as liberated men, freed men, healed men, won't we? Amen. Brother brother Kevin, you come.